Our goal at the Sleepy Bookshelf is to help the world get better sleep. So if you're enjoying the show, please make sure that you followed the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and any other podcast player you use. And if you have a moment, review the show on Apple Podcasts. All of this helps the show reach new listeners and share the gift of a good night's rest. Thank you so much for your support. Good evening and welcome to the Sleepy Bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm Elizabeth, your host, and it's great to have you here with me. Tonight, we'll be continuing with Anne of Green Gables. But before we begin, let's take some time to get comfortable in bed. Once you've found a cozy spot, take a big inhale and then a deep sigh to let it all go. Don't worry about falling asleep. We all drift off in our own time. Allow your mind to be enticed into this story and move away from any thoughts from the day that are trying to steal your focus. Last time we met, Anne was disappointed with the dresses Marilla had made for her to replace her old clothes from the orphanage. Anne had wanted something more fashionable with puff sleeves, but Marilla had insisted that practicality was most important. Anne was due to make her first trip to Sunday school, but Marilla had come down with a headache, so she had to go alone. On the way, Anne found some pretty flowers to put in her hat to make her feel more beautiful when meeting the other girls. Marilla did not hear about this until the following week from Mrs. Lynde, and Anne was very apologetic when she reproached her for it. Marilla then explained that the little girl, Diana Barry, who lived nearby, was home, and that Anne would be meeting her that day. Despite her nervousness to make a good impression, Anne and Diana got along famously and both looked forward to attending the recently announced Sunday school picnic together. That Sunday, Marilla put on her usual amethyst brooch and escorted Anne to church. We pick up tonight the very next day at home in Green Gables. So close your eyes and listen to the sound of my voice as I turn to the next pages of Anne of Green Gables. Chapter 14 Anne's Confession 
On the Monday evening before the picnic, Marilla came down from her room with a troubled face. Anne, she said to that small personage who was shelling peas by the spotless table and singing Nelly of the Hazel Dell with a vigor and expression that did credit to Diana's teaching. Did you see anything of my amethyst brooch? I thought I stuck it in my pincushion when I came home from church yesterday evening, but I can't find it anywhere. I saw it this afternoon, when you were away at the Aid Society, said Anne a little slowly. I was passing your door when I saw it on the cushion, so I went in to look at it. Did you touch it? said Marilla sternly. Yes, admitted Anne. I took it up and I pinned it on my breast just to see how it would look. You had no business to do anything of the sort, said Marilla. It's very wrong in a little girl to meddle. You shouldn't have gone into my room in the first place, and you shouldn't have touched a brooch that didn't belong to you in the second. Where did you put it? Oh, I put it back on the bureau. I hadn't it on a minute, said Anne. Truly, I didn't mean to meddle, Marilla. I didn't think about its being wrong to go in and try on the brooch, but I see now that it was, and I'll never do it again. That's one good thing about me. I never do the same naughty thing twice. You didn't put it back, said Marilla. That brooch isn't anywhere on the bureau. You've taken it out or something, Anne. I did put it back, said Anne quickly, pertly, Marilla thought. I just don't remember whether I stuck it on the pincushion or laid it in the china tray, but I'm perfectly certain I put it back. I'll go and have another look, said Marilla determining to be just. If you put that brooch back, it's there still. If it isn't, I'll know you didn't, that's all. Marilla went to her room and made a thorough search, not only over the bureau, but in every other place she thought the brooch might possibly be. It was not to be found, and she returned to the kitchen. Anne, The brooch is gone. By your own admission, you were the last person to handle it. Now what have you done with it? Tell me the truth at once. Did you take it out and lose it? No, I didn't, said Anne solemnly, meeting Marilla's angry gaze squarely. I never took the brooch out of your room. And that is the truth if I was to be led to the block for it, although I'm not very certain what a block is. So there, Marilla. Anne's so there was only intended to emphasize her assertion, but Marilla took it as a display of defiance. I believe you are telling me a falsehood, Anne, she said sharply. I know you are. There now, don't say anything more 
unless you are prepared to tell the whole truth. Go to your room and stay there until you are ready to confess. Will I take the peas with me? said Anne meekly. No, I'll finish shelling them myself. Do as I bid you, Marilla instructed. When Anne had gone, Marilla went about her evening tasks in a very disturbed state of mind. She was worried about her valuable brooch. What if Anne had lost it? And how wicked of the child to deny having taken it when anybody could see she must have, with such an innocent face too. I don't know what I wouldn't sooner have happened, thought Marilla as she nervously shelled the peas. Of course I don't suppose she meant to steal it or anything like that. She's just taken it to play with or help along that imagination of hers. She must have taken it, that's clear, for there hasn't been a soul in that room since she was in it by her own story until I went up tonight, and the brooch is gone. There's nothing surer. I suppose she has lost it and is afraid to own up for it for fear she'll be punished. It's a dreadful thing to think she tells falsehoods. It's a far worse thing than her fit of temper. It's a fearful responsibility to have a child in your house you can't trust. Salinas and untruthfulness, that's what she has displayed. I declare I feel worse about that than about the brooch. If she'd only told the truth about it, I wouldn't mind so much. Marilla went to her room at intervals all through the evening and searched for the brooch without finding it. A bedtime visit to the East Gable produced no result. Anne persisted in denying that she knew anything about the brooch, but Marilla was only the more firmly convinced that she did. She told Matthew the story the next morning. Matthew was confounded and puzzled. He could not so quickly lose faith in Anne, but he had to admit that the circumstances were against her. You're sure it hasn't fallen down behind the bureau, was the only suggestion he could offer. I've moved the bureau and I've taken out the drawers and I've looked in every crack and cranny, was Marilla's positive answer. The brooch is gone, and that child has taken it and lied about it. That's the plain, ugly truth, Matthew Cuthbert, and we might as well look it in the face. Well now, what are you going to do about it? Matthew asked forlornly feeling secretly thankful that Marilla and not he had to deal with the situation. He felt no desire to put his oar in this time. She'll stay in her room until she confesses, said Marilla grimly, remembering the success of this method in the former case. Then we'll see. Perhaps we'll be able to find the brooch if she'll only tell where she took it in any case, she'll have to be severely punished, Matthew. Well now, you'll have to punish her, said Matthew, reaching for his hat. 
I've nothing to do with it, remember? You warn me off yourself. Marilla felt deserted by everyone. She could not even go to Mrs. Lynde for advice. She went up to the east gable with a very serious face and left it with a face more serious still. Anne steadfastly refused to confess. She persisted in asserting that she had not taken the brooch. The child had evidently been crying, and Marilla felt a pang of pity which she sternly repressed. By night, she was, as she expressed it, beat out. You'll stay in this room until you confess, Anne. You can make up your mind to do that, she said firmly. But the picnic is tomorrow, Marilla, pleaded Anne. You won't keep me from going to that, will you? You'll just let me go out for the afternoon, won't you? Then I'll stay here as long as you like afterwards, cheerfully. But I must go to the picnic. Marilla shook her head. You'll not go to picnics, nor anywhere else, until you've confessed, Anne. Oh, Marilla, said Anne despondently. But Marilla had gone out and shut the door. Wednesday morning dawned as bright and fair as if expressly made to order for the picnic. Birds sang around Green Gables. The Madonna lilies in the garden sent out whiffs of perfume that entered in on viewless winds at every door and window and wandered through halls and rooms like spirits of benediction. The birches in the hollow waved joyful hands as if watching for Anne's usual morning greeting from the east gable, but Anne was not at her window. When Marilla took her breakfast up to her, she found the child sitting primly on her bed, pale and resolute, with tight shut lips and gleaming eyes. Marilla, I'm ready to confess, she said. Marilla laid down her tray. Once again, her method had succeeded, but her success was very bitter to her. Let me hear what you have to say then, Anne. I took the amethyst brooch, said Anne, as if repeating a lesson she had learned. I took it just as you said. I didn't mean to take it when I went in, but it did look so beautiful, Marilla, when I pinned it on my breast, that I was overcome by an irresistible temptation. I imagined how perfectly thrilling it would be to take it to Idlewind and play I was the Lady Cordelia Fitzgerald. It would be so much easier to imagine I was the Lady Cordelia if I had a real amethyst brooch on. Diana and I made necklaces of roseberries, but what are roseberries compared to amethysts? So I took the brooch. I thought I could put it back before you came home. I went all the way around by the road to lengthen out the time 
When I was going over the bridge across the lake of shining waters, I took the brooch off to have another look at it. Oh, how it did shine in the sunlight. And then when I was leaning over the bridge, it just slipped through my fingers and went down, 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 all purpley sparkling and sank forevermore beneath the lake of shining waters. And that's the best I can do at confessing, Marilla. Marilla felt hot anger surge up into her heart again. This child had taken and lost her treasured amethyst brooch and now sat there calmly reciting the details thereof without the least apparent compunction or repentance. Anne, this is terrible, she said, trying to speak calmly. You are the very wickedest girl I ever heard of. Yes, I suppose I am, agreed Anne tranquilly. And I know I'll have to be punished. It'll be your duty to punish me, Marilla. Won't you please get it over right off? Because I'd like to go to the picnic with nothing on my mind. Picnic, indeed, Marilla replied. You'll go to no picnic today, Anne Shirley. That shall be your punishment. And it isn't half severe enough either for what you've done. Not to go to the picnic. Anne sprang to her feet and clutched Marilla's hand. But you promised me I might. Oh, Marilla, I must go to the picnic. That was why I confessed. Punish me any way you like but that. Oh, Marilla, please, please let me go to the picnic. Think of the ice cream. For anything, you know I may never have a chance to taste ice cream again. Marilla disengaged Anne's clinging hand stonily. You needn't plead, Anne. You're not going to the picnic, and that's final. No, not a word. Anne realized that Marilla was not to be moved. She clasped her hands together gave a piercing shriek and then flung herself face down on the bed, crying and writhing in an utter abandonment of disappointment and despair. For the land's sake, gasped Marilla, hastening from the room. I believe the child is crazy. No child in her senses would behave as she does. If she isn't, she's utterly bad. Oh dear, I'm afraid Rachel was right from the first, but I've put my hand to the plow and I won't look back. This was a dismal morning. Marilla worked fiercely and scrubbed the porch floor and the dairy shelves when she could find nothing else to do. Neither the shelves nor the porch needed it, but Marilla did. Then she went out and raked the yard. 
When dinner was ready, she went to the stairs and called Anne. A tear-stained face appeared, looking tragically over the banisters. Come down to your dinner, Anne. I don't want any dinner, Marilla, said Anne, sobbingly. I couldn't eat a thing. My heart is broken. You'll feel remorse of conscience someday, I expect, for breaking it, Marilla. But I forgive you. Remember when the time comes that I forgive you. But please, don't ask me to eat anything, especially boiled pork and greens. Boiled pork and greens are so unromantic when one is in affliction. Exasperated, Marilla returned to the kitchen and poured out her tale of woe to Matthew, who, between his sense of justice and his unlawful sympathy with Anne, was a miserable man. Well now, she shouldn't have taken the brooch, Marilla, or told stories about it, he admitted, mournfully surveying his plate full of unromantic pork and greens, as if he, like Anne, thought it a food unsuited to crisis of feeling. But she's just a little thing, such an interesting little thing. Don't you think it's pretty rough not to let her go to the picnic when she's so set on it? Matthew Cuthbert, I'm amazed at you, said Marilla. I think I've let her off entirely too easy and she doesn't appear to realize how wicked she's been at all. That's what worries me most. If she'd really felt sorry, it wouldn't be so bad. And you don't seem to realize it neither. You're making excuses for her all the time yourself. I can see that. Well, now she's such a little thing, feebly reiterated Matthew. And there should be be allowances made, Marilla. You know she's never had any bringing up. Well, she's having it now, retorted Marilla. The retort silenced Matthew if it did not convince him. That dinner was a very dismal meal. The only cheerful thing about it was Jerry Boat, the hired boy, and Marilla resented his cheerfulness as a personal insult. When her dishes were washed and her bread sponge sat and hens fed, Marilla remembered that she had noticed a small rent in her best black lace shawl when she had taken it off on Monday afternoon on returning from the ladies' aid. She would go and mend it. The shawl was in a box in her trunk. As Marilla lifted it out, the sunlight falling through the vines that clustered thickly about the window, struck upon something caught in the shawl, something that glittered and sparkled in facets of violet light. Marilla snatched at it with a gasp. It was the amethyst brooch, hanging to a thread of the lace by its catch, Dear life and heart, said Marilla blankly. What does this mean? 
Here's my brooch, safe and sound, that I thought was at the bottom of Barry's pond. Whatever did that girl mean by saying she took it and lost it? I declare, I believe Green Gables is bewitched. I remember now that when I took off my shawl Monday afternoon, I laid it on the bureau for a minute. I suppose the brooch got caught in it somehow. Marilla betook herself to the east gable, brooch in hand. Anne had cried herself out and was sitting dejectedly by the window. Anne Shirley, said Marilla solemnly, I've just found my brooch hanging to my black lace shawl. Now I want to know what that rigmarole you told me this morning meant. Why... You said you'd keep me here until I confessed, returned Dan wearily. And so I decided to confess because I was bound to get to the picnic. I thought out a confession last night after I went to bed and made it as interesting as I could. And I said it over and over so that I wouldn't forget it. But you wouldn't let me go to the picnic after all so all my trouble was wasted. Marilla had to laugh in spite of herself, but her conscience pricked her. Anne, you do beat all. But I was wrong. I see that now. I shouldn't have doubted your word when I'd never known you to tell a story. Of course, it wasn't right for you to confess to a thing you hadn't done, it was very wrong to do so, but I drove you to it. So if you'll forgive me, Anne, I'll forgive you and we'll start square again. Now, get yourself ready for the picnic. Anne flew up like a rocket. Oh, Marilla, isn't it too late? Marilla shook her head. No, it's only two o'clock. They won't be more than well gathered yet, and it'll be an hour before they have tea. Wash your face and comb your hair and put on your gingham. I'll fill a basket for you. There's plenty of stuff baked in the house, and I'll get Jerry to hitch up the sorrel and drive you down to the picnic ground. Oh, Marilla, exclaimed Anne, flying to the washstand. Five minutes ago, I was so miserable, I was wishing I'd never been born, and now I wouldn't change places with an angel. That night, a thoroughly happy, completely tired out Anne returned to Green Gables in a state of beatification impossible to describe. Oh, Marilla. I've had a perfectly scrumptious time, she said. Scrumptious is a new word I learned today. I heard Mary Alice Bell use it. Isn't it very expressive? Everything was lovely. We had a row on the lake of shining waters, six of us at a time, and Jane Andrews nearly fell overboard. She was leaning out to pick water lilies, and if Mr. Andrews hadn't caught her by her sash just in the nick of time, 
she'd have fallen in and probably been drowned. I wish it had been me. It would have been such a romantic experience to have been nearly drowned. It would have been such a thrilling tale to tell. And we had the ice cream. Words fail me to describe that ice cream. Marilla, I assure you, it was sublime. That evening, Marilla told the whole story to Matthew over her stocking basket. I'm willing to own up that I made a mistake, she concluded candidly. But I've learned a lesson. I have to laugh when I think of Anne's confession, although I suppose I shouldn't, for it really was a falsehood. But it doesn't seem as bad as the other would have been somehow, And anyhow, I'm responsible for it. That child is hard to understand in some respects, but I believe she'll turn out right yet. And there's one thing certain, no house will ever be dull that she is in. Chapter 15 A Tempest in the School Teapot What a splendid day, said Anne, drawing a long breath. Isn't it good just to be alive on a day like this? I pity the people who aren't born yet for missing it. They may have good days, of course, but they can never have this one. And it's more splendid still to have such a lovely way to go to school by, isn't it? It's a lot nicer than going round by the road. That is so dusty and hot, said Diana practically, peeping into her dinner basket and mentally calculating if the three juicy, toothsome raspberry tarts reposing there were divided among ten girls, how many bites each girl would have. The little girls of Avonlea School always pooled their lunches, and to eat three raspberry tarts all alone, or even to share them only with one's best chum, would have forever and ever branded as awful mean the girl who did it. And yet, when the tarts were divided among ten girls, you got just enough to tantalize you. The way Anne and Diana went to school was a pretty one. Anne thought those walks to and from school with Diana couldn't be improved upon, even by imagination. Going around by the main road would have been so unromantic, but to go by Lover's Lane and Willowmere and Violet Vale and the Birch Path was romantic if anything ever was. Lover's Lane opened out below the orchard at Green Gables and stretched far up into the woods to the end of the Cuthbert Farm. It was the way by which the cows were taken to the back pasture and the wood hauled home in winter. Anne had named it Lover's Lane before she had been a month at Green Gables. 
Not that lovers ever really walk there, she explained to Marilla. But Diana and I are reading a perfectly magnificent book, and there's a lover's lane in it, so we wanted to have one too. And it's a very pretty name, don't you think? So romantic. We can't imagine the lovers into it, you know. I like that lane because you can think out loud there without people calling you crazy. And starting out alone in the morning, went down Lover's Lane as far as the brook. Here, Diana met her, and the two little girls went up the lane under the leafy arch of maples. Maples are such sociable trees, said Anne. They're always rustling and whispering to you. Until they came to a rustic bridge. Then they left the lane and walked through Mr. Barry's back field and past Willowmere. Beyond Willowmere came Violet Vale, a little green dimple in the shadow of Mr. Andrew Bell's big woods. Of course, there are no violets there now, Anne told Marilla, but Diana says there are millions of them in spring. Oh, Marilla, can't you just imagine you see them? It actually takes away my breath. I named it Violet Vale. Diana says she never saw the beat of me for hitting on fancy names for places. It's nice to be clever at something, isn't it? But Diana named the Birch Path. She wanted to, so I let her. But I'm sure I could have found something more poetical than plain Birch Path. Anybody could think of a name like that. But the Birch Path is one of the prettiest places in the world, Marilla. It was. Other people besides Anne thought so when they stumbled on it. It was a little narrow, twisting path, winding down over a long hill, straight through Mr. Bell's woods, where the light came down, sifted through so many emerald screens that it was as flawless as the heart of a diamond. It was fringed in all its length with slim, young birches, white-stemmed and lissom-bowed, ferns and starflowers and wild lilies of the valley and scarlet tufts of pigeonberries grew thickly along it, and always there was a delightful spiciness in the air and music of bird calls and the murmur and laugh of woodwinds in the trees overhead. Now and then, you might see a rabbit skipping across the road if you were quiet, which, with Anne and Diana, happened about once in a blue moon. Down in the valley, the path came out to the main road, and then it was just up the spruce hill to the school. The Avonlea School was a whitewashed building, low in the eaves and wide in the windows, 
furnished inside with comfortable, substantial, old-fashioned desks that opened and shut and were carved all over their lids with the initials and hieroglyphics of three generations of schoolchildren. The schoolhouse was set back from the road and behind it was a dusky fir wood and a brook where all the children put their bottles of milk in the morning to keep cool and sweet until dinner hour. Marilla had seen Anne start off to school on the first day of September with many secret misgivings. Anne was such an odd girl. How would she get on with the other children? And how on earth would she ever manage to hold her tongue during school hours? Things went better than Marilla feared, however. Anne came home that evening in high spirits. I think I'm going to like school here, she announced. I don't think much of the master, though. He's all the time curling his mustache and making eyes at Prissy Andrews. Prissy is grown up, you know. She's 16, and she's studying for the entrance examination into Queen's Academy at Charlottetown next year. Tilly Balter says the master is dead gone on her. She's got a beautiful complexion and curly brown hair, and she does it up so elegantly. She sits in the long seat at the back, and he sits there too most of the time to explain her lessons, he says. But Ruby Gillis says she saw him writing something on her slate, and when Prissy read it, she blushed as red as a beet and giggled. And Ruby Gillis says she doesn't believe it had anything to do with the lesson. And Shirley, don't let me hear you talking about your teacher in that way again, said Marilla sharply. You don't go to school to criticize the master. I guess he can teach you something, and it's your business to learn. And I want you to understand right off that you are not to come home telling tales about him. That is something I won't encourage. I hope you were a good girl. Indeed I was, said Anne comfortably. It wasn't so hard as you might imagine, either. I sit with Diana. Our seat is right by the window, and we can look down to the lake of shining waters. There are a lot of nice girls in school, and we had scrumptious fun playing at dinner time. It's so nice to have a lot of little girls to play with, but of course I like Diana best and always will. I adore Diana. I'm dreadfully far behind the others. They're all in the fifth book and I'm only in the fourth. I feel that it's kind of a disgrace, but there's not one of them that has such an imagination as I have and I soon found that out. We had reading and geography and Canadian history and dictation today. 
Mr. Phillips said my spelling was disgraceful, and he held up my slate so that everybody could see it, all marked over. I felt so mortified, Marilla. He might have been politer to a stranger, I think. Ruby Gillis gave me an apple, and Sophia Sloan lent me a lovely pink card with May I See You Home on it. I'm to give it back to her tomorrow. And Tilly Balter let me wear her bead ring all the afternoon. Can I have some of those pearl beads off the old pincushion in the garret to make myself a ring? And oh, Marilla, Jane Andrews told me that Minnie McPherson told her that she heard Prissy Andrews tell Sarah Gillis that I had a very pretty nose. Marilla, that is the first compliment I have ever had in my life. You can't imagine what a strange feeling it gave me. Marilla, have I really a pretty nose? I know you'll tell me the truth. Your nose is well enough, said Marilla shortly. Secretly, she thought Anne's nose was a remarkably pretty one, but she had no intention of telling her so. That was three weeks ago, and all had gone smoothly so far. And now, this crisp September morning, Anne and Diana were tripping blithely down the birch path, two of the happiest little girls in Avonlea. I guess Gilbert Blythe will be in school today, said Diana. He's been visiting his cousins over in New Brunswick all summer, and he only came home Saturday night. He's awfully handsome, Anne, and he teases the girls something terrible. He just torments our lives out. Diana's voice indicated that she rather liked having her life tormented out than not. Gilbert Blythe, said Anne. Isn't his name that's written up on the porch wall with Julia Bells and a big take notice over them? Yes, said Diana, tossing her head. But I'm sure he doesn't like Julia Bell so very much. I've heard him say that he studied the multiplication table by her freckles. Oh, don't speak about freckles to me, implored Anne. It isn't delicate when I've got so many. But I do think that writing take notices up on the wall about the boys and girls is the silliest ever. I should just like to see anybody dare write my name up with a boy's. Not, of course, she hastened to add, that anybody would. Anne sighed. She didn't want her name written up, but it was a little humiliating to know that there was no danger of it. Nonsense, said Diana, whose black eyes and glossy tresses had played such havoc with the hearts of Avonlea schoolboys that her name figured on the porch walls in half a dozen take notices. It's only meant as a joke, 
and don't you be too sure your name won't ever be written up. Charlie Sloan is dead gone on you. He told his mother, his mother, mind you, that you were the smartest girl in school. That's better than being good-looking. No, it isn't, said Anne, feminine to the core. I'd rather be pretty than clever, and I hate Charlie Sloan. I can't bear a boy with goggle eyes. If anyone wrote my name up with his, I'd never get over it, Diana Barry. But it is nice to keep head of your class. You'll have Gilbert in your class after this, said Diana. And he's used to being head of his class, I can tell you. He's only in the fourth book, although he's nearly 14. Four years ago, his father was sick and had to go out to Alberta for his health, and Gilbert went with him. They were there three years, and Gil didn't want to go to school, hardly any, until they came back. You won't find it so easy to keep head after this, Anne. I'm glad, said Anne quickly. I couldn't really feel proud of keeping head of little boys and girls of just nine or ten. I got up yesterday spelling ebullition. Josie Pye was head, and mind you, she peeped in her book. Mr. Phillips didn't see her. He was looking at Prissy Andrews, but I did. I just swept her a look of freezing scorn and she got as red as a beet and spelled it wrong after all. Those pie girls are cheats all round, said Diana indignantly as they climbed the fence of the main road. Gertie Pie actually went and put her milk bottle in my place in the brook yesterday. Did you ever? I don't speak to her now. When Mr. Phillips was in the back of the room hearing Prissy Andrews's Latin, Diana whispered to Anne, That's Gilbert Blythe, sitting right across the aisle from you, Anne. Just look at him and see if you don't think he's handsome. Anne looked accordingly. She had a good chance to do so for she said Gilbert Blythe was absorbed in stealthily pinning the long yellow braid of Ruby Gillis, who sat in front of him, to the back of her seat. He was a tall boy, with curly brown hair, roguish hazel eyes, and a mouth twisted into a teasing smile. Presently, Ruby Gillis started up to take a sum to the master. She fell back into her seat with a little shriek, believing that her hair was pulled out by the roots. Everybody looked at her, and Mr. Phillips glared so sternly that Ruby began to cry. Gilbert had whisked the pin out of sight and was studying his history with the soberest face in the world. But when the commotion subsided, he looked at Anne and winked with an inexpressible drollery. I think your Gilbert Blythe is handsome, 
confided Anne to Diana. But I think he is very bold. It isn't good manners to wink at a strange girl. But it was not until the afternoon that things really began to happen. <laughs>